Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Welcome back to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. It's Melissa Joy here today, and I am so pleased to be joined by attorney Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer is a family law attorney in Ann Arbor, and she specializes in divorce, custody, estate planning, and prenuptial agreements. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Melissa. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. We are going to be talking about something that I have a feeling quite a few people are secretly interested in. We're going to be talking about prenuptial agreements, something that comes up from time to time. And I think um, more and more in a modern society where we have a modern approach to finances, um, those types of agreements are increasingly appropriate or proper. Um, To get started, tell me a little bit about what is a prenuptial agreement. Sure. So typically when you think of prenup, you're going to think about a celebrity or somebody who has a large estate coming into a marriage that wants to protect that asset or protect their future earnings. And that's true. Um, Prenuptial agreements are used uh, in high asset marriages or specifically celebrity marriages quite a bit. However, they can really be used for everyone. And here's why. Um, A prenuptial agreement is a contract. And so prior to marriage, when you enter into the contract of marriage, um, you can draft a contract called a prenuptial agreement that says what's going to happen with your property. And that includes property that you bring into the marriage. It also includes property that you earn or gain during the marriage. So essentially that contract is going to control what happens with that property in the event of a divorce. Um, so it is It is basically, it's a contract that we write up, the parties sign it prior to the marriage, and that contract is binding in the event of a marriage with some exceptions, which what we can talk about as well. So one important component there I'm hearing is you need to have these discussions and get um, be a party to this contract before you walk down the aisle. Absolutely. So one of the things that people have to know is that there has to be, the contract has to be signed prior to the marriage. Not only does it have to be signed prior to the marriage, there's also some some rules and regulations about what how the contract comes to fruition and how to make it enforceable so that both sides know that they're signing a contract that at least is giving them the most chance of having it being binding in the event that they were to divorce. And I can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like me to. Yeah, I'd love to hear more. I want to know kind of how it works because we've all heard like, I think the one inch deep version of just, they got a prenup or something like that. And probably not in, you probably don't discuss it with your friends when you're becoming a party to this or as often, because people just don't talk about their finances in general, you know, with peers. So I want to hear the interactions of how this actually can come to fruition. So I think sometimes it comes to fruition from a perspective of 
one party is coming into the marriage, say with an inheritance, or one party is coming into the marriage, um, people are getting married later. Um, and so, you know, I see two types of clients. One is um, parties are getting married for the first time. It's a first marriage for the husband and the wife or the, or the spouses, husband and husband, wife and wife. And they will come in and say, um, I have a, a sizable estate that I inherited from my family. And uh, I was talking to a family member and that family member said, you should really protect that. Um, so that is, is generally first marriages, what I'm getting. I also have people that just have disparate incomes. It used to be in the olden days when women weren't running companies and CEOs or uh, working as oncologists or cardiologists that, that we would have the male saying, I want to protect my income going forward in the event of divorce. I don't want to be liable to support my wife. I just did a prenup last year where it was absolutely the opposite. My client was a physician. She made probably seven times what her spouse, uh, her fiance was making, and she wanted to protect that. She had a, a large amount of retirement. She had a large amount of assets coming into the marriage and he didn't. Um, in that type of situation, whether it's whichever spouse is earning more, a lot of times their friends, other physicians, other friends will say, you might want to consider looking into a prenuptial agreement and how that would work. Um, so that's kind of the, the first marriage type. I also get people calling me on a second marriage or subsequent marriage. So you've got people that are in their 50s to 70s to 80s who've been married before. Maybe they've been divorced and they went through a really bad divorce and they realize I don't want to, I don't want to give half of my, my income to my new spouse. Or um, they have children. So mm -hmm. let's say they have adult children. And they say, well, I really want to preserve a portion of my estate or all of my estate for my kids. Even though I'm marrying this person I really love, I want to preserve it. So what will happen is they'll come in and say, I want to do a prenuptial agreement. I'm okay with my spouse and I sharing what we have during the marriage, but I want to preserve something for my kids. Um, in that situation, we will, we will look at it more of a component of, of estate planning, of financial estate planning so that the spouse is taken care of, but also that there's some residue, residual income for the kids. So that's kind of the two ways that I see people coming into my office for a prenuptial agreement. That makes sense. So there's some sort of, you know, at the offset, either mindset or situation where we need some extra understanding. And, you know, this is all getting into the, the fact that it's difficult to communicate about money with someone who, especially as you're describing, you know, we, we establish our money life as we become adults. And then when you think about as people are getting married at a later age, or perhaps as a second marriage, then figuring out how you can kind of integrate your money life with each other as a financial planner, I know that that can be a challenge for people. Some people choose to say, oh, we're totally separate. You know, like I do my thing, he does his. And then you, that, that can be effective, but it comes with some landmines, including, you know, it's really difficult to retire when you're both living in the same house without, you know, some shared like knowledge or ownership of each other's situation. Also, there's just like the challenge if you're not communicating on your finances. And this is like even accelerating that conversation because you need to have that those like very frank, transparent discussions right off the bat. So how does that work? Like it, it seems like yeah. it might be challenging. 
you actually hit the nail on the head on one of the components of a prenuptial agreement that is required. So um, just to give you a little background, prior to 2017, prenuptial agreements were um, a little bit, I would call it the Wild West, meaning you know, you've heard, I don't know if you've heard of the old adage of we wrote our prenuptial agreement on a napkin and, and a mm-hmm. judge enforced it. So a napkin's not going to suffice. Post-2017, there was a big case in Michigan called the Allard v. Allard case. And the Allard case essentially kind of rewrote and reiterated the guidelines to what makes a prenuptial agreement contract valid. So there's a couple things. One is you have to do it well in advance of the marriage. So I have had calls from people saying, hey, I'm getting married in two weeks and we decided we need a prenup. That's a hard no for me. There's no way I'm going to meet with people and try to negotiate their financial futures together in two weeks. You've got, um, you know, especially if it's a first marriage, you've got a lot of planning, a lot of money that goes into a wedding, a lot of emotions, hopefully happy ones. And it's just not the time. The invitations are in the mail. So invitations are in the mail. They're gone. Everybody's planning this wedding. So don't call an attorney two weeks prior to your wedding and ask for a prenuptial agreement. That is a big no-no. And and a couple of reasons why is that let's say I do have somebody that comes in and signs their prenup on the eve of their wedding. Down the road, one of the parties who may not feel that it was fair to them can argue, I felt like I was under duress. And that is one way that you can get out of a prenup is duress. Now, duress is generally defined as, you know, I'm holding a gun to your head. You know, it's like the legal. But from a, from a factual perspective, you don't want to be signing your prenup the day before your wedding or even worse, on the day of your wedding. So pre-2017, there was these cases where people were litigating, was it duress, was it not duress? So that's step one. You you gotta you gotta plan early. So I would say minimum, minimum six months. If you can do it more than six months in advance when you get engaged, have that conversation, perfect. I have done prenuptial agreements that are less than that six months, but generally the parties have to be on the same page and 100 percent committed to transparency. And that's point two is transparency. So part of what goes into a financial uh, uh, financial agreement when you're doing a prenup is what are you bringing into the marriage pursuant to assets and what are you bringing into the marriage pursuant to debts? So we would we would memorialize those in exhibits. So one, another requirement is that each party does a full financial disclosure. Now that's interesting because I recently worked with someone who was unaware throughout her marriage of some assets that the husband brought into the marriage. So they only, this only came to light at the point of divorce. And um, as you can imagine, A, that was, you know, a, um, a high point of discussion, but also you need full that full disclosure. So, which also, you know, of course, as a financial planner, it may be um, a sticky conversation to talk about some assets that are considered separate or really aren't intended for kind of joint usage, but I'd rather have an uncomfortable conversation then something blow up later when um, a secret is revealed. Yeah. And I, and I think what's important to remember too, is that in Michigan, if you get divorced, premarital assets are generally exempt. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a few ways that that can be commingled into marital property. And that's probably a separate podcast, to be honest. Right. But in general, if I brought in $100,000 in inheritance from my grandmother, and I left that in an account with with you, Melissa, 
and I didn't, and I, maybe I didn't touch it during the marriage or I, I only used it for purposes of a specific purpose. I didn't bring it in. And it was I, always in your name. It was always in my name. Not joint. Yeah. Didn't put my husband's name on it. Um, that's, that's premarital. It's not going to get divided in a divorce generally either. Now, if I take out of that hundred thousand, I take 50 and buy my husband and I a car, well, then that becomes a commingled marital asset. The car gets divided. So some of what we can do in the prenuptial agreement is state what you're bringing in, what you're keeping separate, how you're going to do that. But it also, you're right. It requires those really tough conversations with hopefully a good financial planner that says, how are we going to make our marriage work financially? And what are we bringing in? The other problem is that let's say I've got $200,000 in student loan debt. Um, My spouse needs to know that. And I, in a lot of cases, my husband, you know, I have, I have law school that when I went into my marriage, my husband had zero clue. He wasn't looking at the statements from the federal student loans that I was getting. So when I graduated with a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, he was appalled and, you know, granted, you know, I've paid it off, but still he was not, I think that that also is part of the disclosure is kind of knowing what you're, what you're getting. Right. Because Mm -hmm. That those types of debts are also things that can cause rifts in a marriage. So full financial disclosure, not doing it too close. And the, the big third one that people prior to 2017 kind of played wishy-washy with was both parties need to be represented by separate counsel. So that sounds like um, a big deal. I love that because you each need your your individual interests and counseling. And it can be really challenging to be in the middle of that. It's a direct, to me, it's a direct conflict of interest for one attorney to be, you cannot represent both sides. And even if you make that, it's the same thing with the divorce. I cannot represent a husband and a wife in a divorce because what, what, you know, my, my active duty has to be to one person who hires me. So let's say in, in a case, a husband calls me and says, we want a prenup. My first step is, okay, who is, who is going to represent your fiance? That's, Number one, and I will not do a prenuptial agreement unless both sides are represented by adequate counsel who understands what the current status of the law is. Um, If they don't understand that and they don't have separate representation, again, that gives that gives the contract less uh, validity. So you're that's another attack point. I just actually am doing a, a division right now for a couple who are getting divorced, subsequent divorce. They had a prenuptial agreement. The wife was not represented. Um, the husband was. If it, under the new kind of status of the law, I would automatically challenge that because she should have had at least had separate counsel that she called and said, "Is this okay?" Um, so those are kind of the big ones. So the timing, the disclosure, and then both parties need attorneys on both sides. Well, and I would pause right there because I think that there often is a. Um, assumption when you're like, oh, we just need a simple document. It's not going to be a big deal that I'll just go to, you know, my uncle who's an attorney who handles, you know, business contracts, or I'll just go to the person who did this real estate deal for me. And I, it seems to me like, because there's a complexity and also there is, you want this contract to stand up and you also want it, you're starting off a a marriage which is intended to not be dissolved, right? So you also want it to be um, to work for you when you stay married as well. 
that you want someone who is used to dealing with this, a family law attorney who has done prenuptial agreements, not just once in a blue moon, but in regular course of business. Yeah, I've had a couple of cases where I've mentioned to other attorneys the Allard case, which is the current law in Michigan. Um, And if they don't recognize or understand what that case means and what it says now, I, that gives me pause. So they really, you really have to have an understanding of what you're getting into because um, the Allard case. So prior to the Allard case uh, parties, let's say that I married Tiger Woods, right? So Tiger Woods, well, not, maybe not right now because he sounds like he's not going to play golf. Um, But let's say I married Michael Jordan or somebody that was a very high earner and I'm just lonely old Jen in Ann Arbor. Um, in that case, Michael Jordan or my future husband could say, I'm not giving her any, I'm going to make her bar alimony. She's not going to get anything down the road. And let's say I stay married to Michael Jordan for 20 years. Under the pre-Allard, pre-2017 law, a court would say, I'm sorry, Miss Lawrence, I have no other option but to abide by this contract. You signed it. You had no duress. You understood what you were getting yourself into. And we're going to abide by this contract. Okay, so that was pre-2017. After this case came out, what it said was, okay, that's true. However, the courts have two different areas that they can use. One is the court of law and one is the court of equity. And so a judge is able, those two scales that you see, the balancing of the scales is really what I think of as equity. Mm -hmm. So when you have a case where you just feel like this isn't fair, if you can't get the legal authority, the contract voided, you can ask the court to look at it from an equitable standpoint and say, Your Honor, this just isn't fair. I was married to Michael Jordan for 20 years. I had kids with him. You know, he traveled all the time. And now he's saying I get nothing. The judge could say, well, you know what? You're right, Miss Lawrence. I'm actually going to divide the estate 50-50. And he can override, he or she, the judge can now override the contract if it's not equitable. So the other thing that you have to understand, you have to disclose to clients is that we want to make this agreement equitable. We want to make as many safeguards as possible that if you're giving up something or you're getting something that it's very clear because down the road, you don't want to litigate this contract. You want it to be binding and you want it to be equitable. So that is something that we have to disclose to clients now that we didn't before is that, you know, if there's, if circumstances change such that are, it's so unfair to, to abide by this contract, a judge could say, you know what? It's not fair. I'm going to, I'm going to invade what was previously separate. And I think if people don't understand that, that they run a real risk of malpractice of doing prenuptial agreements and not making those disclosures. So it's really important to make sure that the person you're working with understands what the current status of the law is. So once you have the representation, you have adequate legal, adequate or good legal counsel, then is how does it work from that point? So you you develop the financial inventory of a list of assets and liabilities, and then you have, is it like a negotiation? Do the attorneys get together? How do you, how does it, t- I'm sure there are, you know, can be variables, but how do, what might it look like? So one party drafts the agreement and the other party receives the agreement. So usually when someone calls me, you know, when, um, Jane Doe calls me, I'll say, would you like me to draft the agreement? Or does your spouse, your, you know, your fiance's uh, attorney, would would they like to draft it? 
there is a group of attorneys that work um, at various well-established firms in Washtenaw County that I do most of my prenups with. Um, we use somewhat of the same kind of basic format. And the format goes through and explains, you know, what the terms are of the agreement, um, what the parties expect to keep separate. And that can vary wildly from person to person. Some people, you know, want everything separate. They're not going to mix anything. Other people are a little bit more flexible. Maybe they want to have a joint marital account where they contribute pro rata their incomes. And then other people say, you know what, I just want to keep what I brought into the marriage separate. Everything else during the marriage is, is marital. So I've had them go all the way from the very kind of strict compliance to, um, you know, I just want my kids to get whatever's left over after my spouse, you know? So, I mean, there's, there's very widely, so it's really going to be fact-based on what the parties are asking for. Mm-hmm. And then I, so for instance, I drafted a prenuptial agreement last week and then I sent it to the, the husband's counsel. I represent the wife in that prenuptial agreement, the, the potential wife. So then the husband's counsel and he will go over the agreement and then send back any proposed revisions. Then attorneys will have discussions. Once everybody's good with the agreement and both parties have done their financial disclosures, we set up a signing appointment. And pre, uh, pre-COVID, we would all get in the same room and we would have a notary present. We'd have witnesses present. Some attorneys will film a prenuptial agreement signing just to, to show that there's no duress, making sure that nobody's being threatened. Um, I have only done that maybe once and that was in a case where it was kind of a little bit of a contentious one. We filmed the, the signing to make sure everybody was okay. Um, but generally the party sign it, they have a signed contract when they leave and then they go and then they get married. And then hopefully we never hear from them again. Right. The goal, and it, as is with much planning um, of risk management, is we never have to deal with this. Um, but if we do, then you have a, a logical, rational game plan. Yes. And it's, it is helpful, I think, to, um, I have had some prenuptial agreements where the parties have come to the signing and some, some questions have come up or some issues, um, kind of the what ifs. Um, I had a situation a few years ago where um, there was a dispute about one of the spouses was a physician and uh, that, that spouse did not want to list the, uh, her fiance as the uh, beneficiary on her retirement accounts mm-hmm. in the event of death, which is pretty uncommon. Um, yeah. Usually if you're married to the person and you, you pass away during the marriage, the spouse, you know, not getting into kind of probate and intestate laws, but the spouse does have a claim against your estate regardless. In this type of situation, though, it was a little bit strange that she wanted her family to stay on as the beneficiaries when she was getting married. Um, that's uncommon. And there was a, uh, a pretty heated argument that ensued. Um, I've had quite a few of those. So there will, if, if things are not kind of fleshed out ahead of time, that can be kind of a disastrous joint meeting. But I can tell you that in every case, the attorneys, as long as they kind of know what the situation is, we've always been able to kind of revamp redo and get the contract signed. So everybody that I know that has had those disputes is still happily married and the contract is sitting in a drawer somewhere. Um, It's just, it's something that they have to consider that they want to get everything fleshed out ahead of time. Now, do prenuptial agreements ever get amended during a marriage? And what if you did not get a prenup and you are now 
married? What are your options for um, contracts that would clarify, you know, ownership or, or the future of certain assets? So you can, by mutual agreement, mutual written agreement, you can modify any contract. Um, these are not irrevocable. You can also, I've had, we have contracts called sunset clauses in the, in the prenuptial agreement. So let's say the parties agree to stay married for 25 years. Um, we can put in a clause that says after they've been married that long, the prenup becomes invalid. Um, so, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of things that we can do to modify. We can actually, we can do a complete rescission. Both people can say, we don't want this anymore and sign a document. Um, now, if you're married to somebody and you realize, oh, I wish I would have done something prior to the marriage, um, there's a couple options. And your options, which I know people who've done, who feel both ways about this. In Michigan, once you're married to somebody, anything you acquire during the marriage is joint property or joint debt. So let's say your spouse develops a gambling problem and puts your marriage and your marital estate in debt. Unfortunately, that debt, when you first kind of look at it, is going to be divided equally between the parties. Mm-hmm. Now, in the process of a divorce, we can kind of work through that. And sometimes we'll allocate more of that debt to the person or all of that debt to the person who took it. Um, but that being said, once you're married and you don't have a prenup, it's kind of, it's wild, wild west. It's open game season. Now, if you are in a situation where things are just not going well and you want to kind of put some parameters in place in anticipation of a divorce, you can draft what's called a postnuptial agreement. Um, in Michigan, I will tell you the case law states currently that if you're going to draft that, it has to be in contemplation of a divorce. The divorce or the filing of a divorce should be happening within one year. So you can use that as kind of a, I've seen people use that as a tool to get their spouse in line. Mm. So let's say you have a spouse that is gambling or is spending money on things that are frivolous or incurring a lot of liabilities or debts. You could, you could say, I want to sign a, a postnuptial agreement. And if you do not abide by the terms that, you know, we've set forth in our marriage, if that person filed within one year of that contract, they potentially could um, have that be a binding settlement in their divorce, meaning whatever they agreed to during that period is, is forward. That goes into their divorce judgment. But, Sounds like um, that might be more rare though, because that's a lot of work for something that you only have a 12 month like time frame to make it happen. So, yeah, I, th- I think it is rare. I have seen attorneys do them for the most part. It's kind of like a last ditch effort to save the marriage. I would say um, mm-hmm. usually there's some sort of, you know, epiphany that occurs or, or tragedy or emergency where one person um, is just completely gone from point A to point Z, you know, and the, and the spouse doesn't want to divorce, maybe for religious reasons, maybe for, they want to maintain their family. Maybe they want to reconcile, but they say, you know what, I need you to start, you know, towing the line. And I want you to sign this agreement because if you don't abide by it, I'm going to file. And and they've got, they basically have a year to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Again, same, same parameters. I want attorneys on both sides. I want full disclosure. I want everyone to understand that this contract is binding. So if you sign it and the other spouse says, you know what, I'm done. 
and they file for divorce, most judges are going to tell you that's a binding contract you just signed. So um, that's kind of the post-snup kind of status right now. Good to know. I think as a financial planner, as I think through our conversation thus far, a couple things come to mind. First of all, whether it's appropriate for you to have a prenuptial agreement or not, full disclosure and sharing of your financial circumstances and determining a method of both communication and kind of rules of the game of how your money life is going to work as a um, partnership is really important and the sooner the better. Um, so that doesn't have to mean that you're giving up control of your, your, you know, the money that you make or your assets, but you, it, you should, you should really, um, consider having, you know, more detailed, complex discussions about this. And if you're not sure where to start or it's difficult for you, then talk to a financial planner because that, that can be, um, well, that's a critical component of the work that we do in, with couples, and then additionally, if you get into, um, if you are married, then I think much of the conversation changes from, you know, what kind of agreement should you have in place if the marriage is dissolved to how do you effectively do estate planning in, in general planning for, um, you know, how your life is going to work if something happens to you. So that's how you title your assets. That's how you designate beneficiaries. And again, you can have some awkward discussions, but you can also do some, you know, forthright planning where if you inherit separate assets, you keep those assets separate and maybe even have a trust that's separate that, that fulfills those purposes. There's a lot of options there, which is a complete additional episode. (laughs) It is. And I, and I should point out, I didn't want to muddy the waters, but generally for second marriages, the component of the prenuptial agreement that we generally focus on the most is going to be the estate planning part of the prenup. So there's two things that people generally address in the prenup. What happens if we divorce? What happens if we die? And for first marriages, generally, if the, especially if it's a younger couple that maybe wants to have or adopt children, they're going to most likely have a much more forth, you know, straightforward estate plan because usually it's going to go to the, their spouse and then their heirs, their children. With a second marriage or subsequent marriage, third marriage, fourth marriage, uh, people who have adult children will say, okay, I want to do an estate plan that says, let's say we have a house together in Ann Arbor. I want my my spouse to be able to live in this house. Maybe I'm going to give my spouse a life estate in this house. But when she dies or doesn't want to live there, I want that to be sold and go to my kids. And um, that is a very common. So for second marriages, it's kind of a whole different approach is that we're looking more at what happens to my estate once I pass away, not necessarily what happens in the event of divorce. There's not as much focus on that. Because usually we're talking about people in their 60s, maybe 70s, they're not working anymore, they're retired, they've got a fixed income, um, they're living off of, you know, assets from retirement. So, um, you know, those are usually kind of where we go in a, in a second marriage. So yes, definitely estate planning is important there. Yeah, that's perfect. I, I feel as we discussed before this conversation, I think that we could go on and on about, you know, the details and and different anecdotes and experiences, but I hope that our listeners have gotten a chance to think more conceptually about um, these types of legal arrangements and can understand when a prenuptial agreement may be appropriate. I anticipate that either family members, friends, or people that are anticipating marriage may pull up this episode to just get a feel for you know, what the landscape is. 
if people had questions about a prenuptial agreement, where would they find you, Jennifer? Um, so the best way to get in touch with me is probably through my website. Uh, my website is jlawlegal.com. Um, there's a, a, a button you can push to contact me and just send me a message and say, you know, I'm thinking about getting married or my sister's planning on getting married. And um, I only practice law in Michigan. I'm licensed to practice in both federal courts in Michigan, the Eastern and Western District and the state of Michigan. And I primarily practice in Washtenaw County, um, but I also do litigation. So um, definitely email is the best way to get in touch, but I'm happy to answer any questions. That's perfect. And it should go without saying, but we're talking in context of Michigan law today. And of course, um, you know, we work with clients around the country. So while many, there may be, you know, kind of shared um, realities across jurisdictions, um, you'd want to get advice from someone who specializes in your particular part of the world. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation and I learned a lot. So I appreciate it, Jennifer. Thank you, Melissa. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about Pearl Planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter also found on our website.